Elizabeth Lindsay, who leads the Brands and Properties Division of Wasserman, one of the world's largest sports marketing and talent management companies, loves to make things better. Whether working with such iconic brands as American Express, Microsoft, AT&T, or the NFL, brands that are willing to test and learn, as Elizabeth explains in this encompassing episode of Game Face Execs, are music to her ears. Join me and hear how Elizabeth's team, using the mind of a consultant and the heart of an artist, helps brand partners stay ahead of change while always being true to who they are. Well, you know, Elizabeth, when we talk about Wasserman, it used to be Wasserman Media Group many years ago. So for my audience, those who are well-versed in what your firm does, but also for those who aren't so familiar with Wasserman, can you just give us a quick synopsis of Wasserman space and what you do for industry? So our job, specifically with respect to the sports, entertainment, and culture spaces in which we all operate and are fans of, our job is to sit at the intersection of that and make those very powerful consumer connections between brands and sports, between sports and fans, between between athletes and their fans, or athletes and brands. That whole ecosystem around what it takes to bring that content to the community, that's what we like to sit in the middle of and make happen. So Wasserman represents athletes. You represent yep. brands. And properties. And properties. Yes. In fact, I was going to say the athlete side of your representation is vast. Many, many athletes from all sports. Yep. On the properties and brand sides, or as the name of your division is, brands and properties. Yep. Talk to us a little bit more specifically about that. Uh, who are your primary clients? Who are you going after to represent? So if you think about our business in its simplest term, it basically breaks down into two halves. There is, as you mentioned, the talent side of the business, and we're fortunate and lucky to be able to represent close to 2,000 athletes worldwide across every major sport you can think of. Clearly the biggest sports agency in the world. That's easier for people to dimensionalize and wrap their heads around, predominantly, thank you, Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire. Like They get their head wrapped around what that means. If you look on the brand and property side, think about it in the same way. My job is no different than an athlete's agent. My job is to be an agent for the brand. My job is to represent the brand and the brand's interest with respect to its investments in and leveraging of sports and entertainment content. So if you think about it in the exact same way, that's what we do on behalf of our brand clients and our property clients. So some of those brand clients, I think of Microsoft, I think of Target and and American Express and Nike. Also on the sports side, you represent all the five major league brands in the United States (laughs) and Canada, don't you? Well, we've worked with all of them. Yes. So we do a ton of work with all five of the big team sports. So NBA, NFL, NHL, MLB, and MLS, and everything to do with what we like to call commercialization and go-to-market strategy. How do you take your product to market? How do you commercialize it? How do you measure its effectiveness? And how do you continue to improve the product that you're offering sponsors and fans based on the information that you get from a robust measurement program? Every single one of these guys is in the business of making their product better and keeping their fans happy. And we like to think we have something to do with helping them do that. So Elizabeth, those who know you say that you have a very, well, you are not someone who gets ruffled easily. I don't want to say you're laid back because I know that you're a very, you have a great intensity about you and your work but you're someone who doesn't get ruffled very easily. So in this environment, I've got to think a lot of your brains, a lot of your clients are getting ruffled because of the uncertainty and because of all the different curveballs that are being thrown at them. 
So would you mind giving us a little bit of glimpse? If we were to walk into their boardrooms right now and hear those internal conversations, I know you can't give away confidences, but what are some of the things that you're hearing and what are those, how are you a part of those conversations right now? So look, here's, I've worked with brands and prior to, look, I've been at Wasserman close to 20 years. And prior to my work on this side of the table, I was at a brand and I ran a program globally. So it gives me a particularly unique insight to look at our clients and understand the challenges that they face. I did their jobs. I've sat in those seats. Now, did I sit in the seat in the middle of a global pandemic? No, but I sit on the brand side in the middle of the internet bubble burst, late 90s, beginning of 2000. So for the tech industry, that was a crisis. I sat there during September 11th and the subsequent economic challenges we faced after that, also a crisis. So I've lived through some on the brand side. I've lived through many on this side. And, you know, what I'm struck by always is we're very, very fortunate to represent some world-class brands who know exactly how to face these challenges. You mentioned some. We're very fortunate to work with American Express and Microsoft and AT&T and Target. These are some really incredible brands. We also work with a few more up-and-coming brands and helping that this may be a different challenge for them than someone who's been around, you know, 50 or 100 plus years. The one thing that I always see in successful brands and I help try to coach into other brands as they are emerging and building their, their equity in the space is first know exactly who you are and do not waver from that. Know who you are and do not waver from that. And if you keep that North Star as a guiding light for your decision-making, you very, very rarely make bad decisions. Know who you are and don't waver from that. One of the things that I love about you know, American Express as a brand, and they've been around, you've got at this point, I'd have to do the math, close to 170 years. And someone said to me once, you know, do you know what the state admission of American Express is? And, and I'm like, well, you know, the credit card brand or travel company. No, no, no. It's world-class service and personal recognition. It's nothing to do with the product. It's who they are, who their ethos is. They know who they are. And when you have that ethos, it's been your ethos for 200 years and you know exactly where to go with it, then you'll succeed. So when the decisions are made on quiet the noise around you, put the crisis on pause for a second, take a step back and look at know who you are and don't waver from that, you'll make the right decisions. So in that realm, however, I have to ask you, how many times are brands needing to reinvent? Certainly personnel changes, conditions change. So how do you balance the reinvention and always being innovative and on the cutting edge? But also I kind of, what I'm interpreting from what you're saying is there's a bit of a traditionalism that you have to respect and honor about your brand. So where's the balance? I wouldn't say traditionalism. I would say consistency, right? And what, take that example that I just said, what world-class service meant back in the day of traveler's checks is very, very different than what world-class service meant when they launched plastic credit cards. And is very, very different than what world-class service is going to mean in the future of mobile payments. So there's not a traditionalism or an inability to change or adapt. It's just a consistency as to why. Like, you know, a lot of brands, when you ask them, well, what do you do? They always tell you what they do. No, no, no. Tell me how and tell me why. And we even try to think about that in our own brand as we build Wasserman around the world. Do you know we service talent and brands and we provide this set of services, but how do we do that and why? And the why is what I think really drives any brand and that and the consistency of how hard you hold on to that why matters. For us and our brand, we talk about a concept of the pursuit of better. 
Like everything we do in our brand for our talent, for our, our brands and our property clients is to make things better, to make their brand better, their business better, our industry better, to push forward the industry on key areas that are important to us, including the work we do with women and collective that we spoke about earlier. This, all of those elements is why we do what we do. What you do can change who you are, how you do it, why you do it shouldn't. And that's a consistency thing. Now, some of the people at Wasserman know that we at Gameface have always hung our hat on a hook that's called results. Yep. So I think this we're speaking the same language here. We always try to focus on what are the results our clients are looking for. And that is our charge is to help them achieve those results. Mm-hmm. That's the why, isn't it? That's the why. Exactly. Our business exists to push your brand and your business forward. Right. Well, I'm putting you on the spot here, Elizabeth, but are there some, a recent example or two where a brand was going through this, this transition, or perhaps they just had to be reawakened to their why. And so whether it was through a campaign or an initiative, they either rediscovered it or they were able to rebroadcast it to the world and make it very, very clear to the world. This is why we exist. Is there an experience that you can think of where Washman played a, a role in that? You know, it's, it's lovely. It's an interesting question. And again, I'm lucky that I get to work with some of the brands I mentioned earlier who are just so steadfast in who they are and understand how they do what they do and why. And we're lucky in that respect. And I'm honored every day that they choose us to work with them. But, you know, we have had some really interesting evolutions in some of the programs that we've done in the sports and entertainment space with our brands. I think back on something as simple as an initiative we did with AT&T. Last year, we're fortunate enough to work with AT&T. I love those guys. They are some of the greatest clients to work with, really innovative and wanting to push the envelope. We were challenged with helping them launch a 5G initiative with the Dallas Cowboys. So it's like, all right, 5G, everybody's talking about 5G. Very few people actually understand its potential and its impact. And it's like, let's get down to the simplicity of what it does is it makes your experience. It brings you as a fan closer to the experience. It makes it more robust. It lets you interact with it in a way that you couldn't in a pre-5G world. Like, let's get down to the why. Like I could have done this 160 second spots to talk about 5G, but we did a really, really, really simple initiative called Pose with the Pros which was using the power and the robustness of the 5G network, we were able to take that old fashioned concept of standing in front of a green screen with a picture of a trophy or whatever, let's modernize that. And so we picked an augmented reality. We built an augmented reality activation where as a fan, you could walk up to this screen, you could pick the players that you preferred and they would walk onto the screen and interact with you in this AR environment in a real, a real time robust way. Then you could just capture the content, send it out to your friends and say, look at me hanging out with this player. And it's something so simple, but powerful. And it was a huge hit. It went everywhere. And the most fun part was watching the players themselves come and interact with themselves on the screen, which was hilarious. But something so simple, instead of this big, heady concept, realizing why you're doing this big, heady, very technical concept and making it real for the fans and improving their experience. That's finding your why. That's finding your purpose and helping explain that to the fans. And that was a lot of fun to do. I want to be clear to our audience that you and I are not doing that for this interview. This is no green screen. <laughs> this is real. <laughs> We're actually interacting. Yeah. Just want to be clear on that. So when you speak about those kinds of campaigns or those projects yeah. that you do with your clients, also just give us a little bit of, of an overview of the people that make up 
the brands and properties side of Wasserman. What kind of skill set, what kind of yeah. functions do you have within that division? So we talk about the end-to-end solution of what we provide, and then we build our teams around those services. And it's a, for us, it's a simple acronym. It's called SEAM. So we talk about S, the strategy. So these are the people who are experts in understanding consumer segmentation and audience understanding and deep analytics, who you should partner with, why, what's best for your brand, what markets should you enter, what partners will, will move the needle for you. So that very deep strategic thinking Talk about E, which is the execution against that strategy. And by execution, I mean creative, how to bring it to life creative, how to have these robust experiential opportunities like we just talked about, how to share it with your consumers in a hospitality environment, in a promotional environment, in retail, in sweepstakes, and anything that you can think to bring that strategy to execution level awareness. Talk about A, the amplification of it in a digital owned and paid media perspective. How do we amplify that, get the message out? And then last but not least, measurement of, you know, tree falls in the woods. You can have the greatest program in the world, but if you don't measure it and tell people about what its effectiveness is, so what? So we want to have that end-to-end experience of the strategy, the execution of that creatively, amplification of it in the digital space, and the robust measurement that comes in the back end. And we've built all of our services around those four buckets. You know, you're a, an expert in sports marketing. When you see and work with sports leagues and sp- more specifically sports teams, what are some of the pieces of advice you give them or would give them? Perhaps they're making some blind spot mistakes right now, or perhaps they're not capitalizing on certain things right now. So if you were sitting around a conference room mm-hmm. with a bunch of sports sponsorship executives who want to know you know, where are these blind spots? What are we missing, Elizabeth? What are some things that would come to the forefront of your mind? So I talk with these guys about the front end and the back end all the time. On the front end, audience segmentation, audience understanding, deep audience analytics. And, you know, we <laughs> I tell this to our property clients and our brand clients. Remember, you are not your, your target demographic. Just because you think something doesn't mean the entirety of your consumer base does. So really understanding them is important. And so spend the time and effort it takes to understand where their fandom comes from, how they choose to spend against it, what they are prioritizing against it from not only a share of wallet, but a share of voice or a share of you know, time clock, like what they're choosing to spend their times on. Understand that because understanding that from a deep, deep, deep level, it will help you make the proper decisions on how to market your team and where to go recruit not only or to keep loyalty among existing fans, but recruit new ones. And I'm sorry, going to just a season ticket holder base and talking to the people who've owned PSLs for 20 years is not deep audience analytics. So let's spend some time on really understanding that on the front end. And then we speak to to measurement on the back end. Like, you know, making decisions in our space is a very emotionally based thing, right? This is a passion-based industry for a reason. So as a result of that, there's a certain amount of art in interpreting how to invest here and what the success of those investments look at. We maintain there's science too. For those who say you cannot measure a the effectiveness of a sponsorship program, you're wrong. You absolutely can measure the effectiveness. I get a lot of grief from certain brands going, gee, I wish that, you know, there was a C 
PM measurement metric for sponsorship. I'm like, why? I don't need that. There's seven other metrics that are going to measure it better. So let's understand what they are. So we spend a ton of time talking with our property clients about that front-end audience analytics and the back-end return on investment modeling that they can then share with their sponsors. You need all of that. You need the right audience coming in. You need the sponsors making it effective. And you as a property are the gatekeeper to both of those pieces of information. Own that. And those who own that and understand it are incredibly successful. We'll get back to our interview in just a moment. But one thing I love about GameFace execs is that we get to hear people's stories. There's a website I love to visit, Ancestry.com, where you can find different paths to uncovering your own story. From building your family tree or learning your full ethnicity, even making some awesome discoveries like some of the ones I've come across, finding ancestors you never knew you had. Ancestry has helped me connect to my unique story. It'll do the same for you. Learn more at Ancestry.com. Now, you were talking a little bit earlier as well about knowing the brand, knowing your market, knowing your audience. You have spent a considerable amount of time and energy becoming a leader in really making sure that our industry understands the role and the future of the women's voice, right? Both as a consumer, because we know that women make vast majority of consumer decisions. We know that wealth is largely gravitating towards the women, the women um, dynamic or excuse me, demographic. Mm-hmm. There's, there's ebb and flow, but it's also very clear where the tide is turning. So you have created at, at Wasserman a thing called the, the Collective. I think my audience would be very interested in hearing the genesis of that mm-hmm. and how it relates to this that I'm, I'm introducing here. So I'm proud of the collective. It just this past year celebrated its one year anniversary. But what I'm most proud about the collective is it's been like a 15, 20 year journey for us. It wasn't something that in 2019, we just went, hey, this would be cool. Like, no, we've been at this for a while in representing one of the most robust portfolios of amazing female athletic talent in the work that we do in our company but also focusing on really deeply understanding brands and how they talk to women. What I'm very interested in is the growing number of CEOs and CMOs that I deal with that are women. Of our top 12 brands, we probably have, I'd say nine or 10, probably nine, I'd have to do the math, out of the top 12 brands we work with that their CMOs, senior leaders or CEOs are are women. And so you've got this brand perspective that we work with from a female perspective. You've got this athlete perspective that we are fortunate enough to have a ringside seat for. And then inside our company, you know, we've worked really hard to curate diversity of thought. And diversity of thought comes from a diverse group of employees in our own company. I'm very pleased to say, you know, we have almost complete gender parity in my division because it's important. Like that those voices are important. And so understanding us as members of this industry, the athletes we work with, the brands we work with, we sort of stepped back and looked at it and went, okay, like let's put an ethos around that and push it out and say, this is important. You are correct. Women control most of the financial decisions. You want to see it even stronger? Look at Gen Z women. So just sit back and wait because what is currently around 85% is going to be like 95% when they hit their peak of how Gen Z are controlling the financial decisions in this country, the women, and most particularly women of color in that group. So if it's an audience you have not yet courted, you are woefully late to the table, get on it because they're becoming more and more and more powerful. That the women bring a unique sense of purpose to the decisions they make too. 
It's not just that they control the dollars. It's how and why they control the dollars and how they're going to hold you accountable as a brand or as a property in sports for delivering against their spending with purpose. They want you to have a purpose and to know who you are. They want you to understand who they are. And if you don't, they ain't going to have time for you. And that's going to be a pretty serious economic impact given their control of the wealth. So the collective was established to just harness all that work we were already doing and put it in one place and say, okay, like we need to, as an industry, make things better for, you know, raising opportunities or visibility of and opportunities for women in and around sport. That is the simple purpose of the collective. (laughs) It's fascinating to me how little work has been done in this space. When we launched it, I vividly remember being asked by the New York Times reporter, do you, what do you, you know, you're raising all this awareness of how important this demographic is and how lucrative they'll be economically. And are you worried that your competitors are going to copy you? And my answer was, Lord, I hope so. And here I am a year and a half later. And I'm like, where are y'all at? Let's go. (laughs) Like, come on, join the party. I hope everybody sees the potential here. Because when women win, we all win in this industry. And so I welcome more people to that party. Can you talk a little bit about the causes that you're finding or as a woman, as a very esteemed woman woman executive in our industry, what are some of the causes that if I was a marketer, if I was an advertiser and I wanted to appeal more to that audience, which maybe I've neglected or I just Mm. don't realize their power, what are some things that perhaps I need to be more keen to? Yeah. So, so, so first, you know, women don't want to be treated as different fans. They just want to be treated as fans. Like we're fans. Like, it, you know, I think long gone for the longest time early in my career, there was a whole phenomenon of shrink it and pink it, right? Like the way to court women is to take t-shirts and make them smaller and pinker and cut for women. And we're going to market those and they'll become Knicks fans if it's pink. So we used to always talk about like shrink it and pink it are gone. People are at least past that a little bit, thinking that that's the way to go after women. They are past the concept of football 101. Like, we're going to host girls' night football 101 classes so you understand how to engage with your man. No, (laughs) we're past that. We are fans in our own right. We understand the game. We like the game. We like it with just as much passion and avidity. We may like it for different reasons. So just take the time to understand that. And no, my fandom is not in context of someone else's. Too often, people market to women and their fandom as in context of or in service of someone else's. You're a fan because your husband watches and you want to be there with him. You're a fan because your kid plays. You're a fan because it was passed down by your dad. Like, you know, our fandom is not a context of someone else's. Talk to me about the fan that I am and why I engage and what I like about the sport. The key is getting to understand that, doing the work, do the work, do the analytics, do the deep, deep, deep insight work you need to do in understanding this segment of consumer and it'll pay out. Great advice and very helpful. Can you help us also understand how you would term or define experiential marketing? (laughs) So look, people make the mistake that experiential is live. And so I got a ton of calls at the beginning of COVID, a lot of people calling going, oh my God, are you so worried about your experiential business? My experiential business was through the roof last year. And the rationale, the reason behind that is something that we keyed in on pre-pandemic five years ago. All experiential is not live. Like 
to this day, millennials, Gen Zs, that audience experiences life and their passions through this. Like that's what they care about. They want to look at the screen. They are experiencing it in a different way. So I think the biggest mistake people make is that experiential is live. It is not. Now, that doesn't mean, because I've also had this question, that, well, the minute the pandemic's over, we're never going to see an in-person activation again. We'll never have big concerts. We'll never have fan fests. We're never going to get together in person again, which is also just as much BS as the fact that experiential is all live. There is something incredibly powerful about human connection. And I think we've all learned that the hard way in the last 12 months is exactly how much we miss that and exactly how, you know, endemic it is to our lives. Like, you know, it's essential in a way, not certainly, I don't mean to co-opt the word associated with first responders and, and healthcare workers right now who are way more essential, but that concept of how we connect as humans over shared passions is a deeply essential, almost existential part of who we are. I'm reminded of that quote in Dead Poet Society that, you know, you know, law and medicine are all necessary pursuits to sustain life, but art and music and passion and sports and all these other things is what we stay alive for. So I'm reminded of that comment a lot. And I, I think it holds true. And we've learned it the hard way that we need a blend of both. We were lucky from an experiential perspective that we began to migrate all of our our products and our services many years ago to that hybrid model of in-person online, predominantly less because of the pandemic, because it didn't exist, but more because of that's where the audience was going. Follow the eyeballs, follow the audience and you'll win. The audience was moving there. So we moved there. So a lot of our activations are from an experiential perspective are both even posed with the pros that I spoke to earlier, perfect in-person experience right there in AT&T stadium with the Cowboys, but it also had so many extensions for people to engage with and share in a virtual second screen environment. It's a combination of both. What I think is some of the brands, properties, and certainly some of the talent that Wasserman represents, you know, they're big, they're major brands, they're big corporations, they're all-stars. And I think connectivity and being able to really get up close and personal with them mm-hmm. isn't something that I, as a common fan, would be afforded that opportunity. And I remember getting started in sports nearly 30 years ago. The idea of being able to associate with players then was also, they're just beyond us. They're beyond our reach, right? They're not the everyman. They were 50 years ago when they lived among the community members during the off season and they'd you know, be mowing their lawn next to you. But it seems like more and more athletes and brands are almost, well, they're not really personalized. I know you're working against that. You're working <laughs> to change that. So tell me how my perception is wrong or tell me how it should be evolving. Well, I think your perception misses one key thing, which is social media, right? Twitter happened, Instagram happened. And as a result, I actually believe for those who do it right and authentically that it brings you closer to brands. It brings you closer to athletes and heroes that you work with. And it gives you an opportunity to have that one-to-one voice, to be heard, to have a relationship in a way that, you know, going to Madison Square Garden and watching someone play is almost a voyeuristic way of interacting with the athlete. You're just sitting back watching. In these really in-depth arenas of social media, you have an opportunity to have a conversation yeah, have your voice be heard. So I think that's changing a little bit. And you see the athletes that are not look, there's not, there's there's definitely some bad to that. And people who don't use that responsibly and kindly. 
But for those who do, and the athletes who or celebrities or musicians or brands or whoever who interact in that arena in a very authentic, respectful way, what you see is a closer relationship with their consumers or their fans. And I think it's a good thing. Like it's a chance to understand them on a really human level that you couldn't before. You could just buy a ticket and go to an arena and watch them from afar, or hope maybe they made a, a highlight on Sports Center. Now you, you have a different way of interacting. And I think those who own that, respect it, use it responsibly. I think it's creating a closer bond between fan and sport. If you don't mind me drilling down a little bit more on that, Elizabeth, you've mentioned a couple of times using it respectfully and responsibly. So I guess the flip side is you have this new tool, Mm -hmm. social media, to connect with your consumers, with your fan base. And sometimes it's almost like you pull down the curtain and we see too much. Yeah. And so how do you advise your clients to create that happy medium where there is transparency and there's authenticity, but there's not so much exposure that the fan or the consumer decides, I don't like this brand anymore. I don't like this athlete anymore. I know too yeah. much. Well, look, you know, it, it goes back to what I said originally, like how do brands survive crisis? Know who you are, know who you are and stay true to that. That is a North star. And so like where I see people get into a little bit of trouble is occasionally if they, you know, if you're a brand who is, you know, more serious and thoughtful and you try to be flip or funny and it's a disconnect with who you are, right? You know, if you are a brand who is about irreverence and you try to tackle really, really serious issues, that's a disconnect. You've got to figure out who you are and what your space and your voice is there and how to handle that as respectfully as possible. It all comes back to inauthenticity, which is something that I believe sports fans can smell from a mile away, more so than any consumer group I've ever worked with. It's all sports fans. They know how, like, whew, they know how and they will hold you accountable if you mess it up. Like you'll have some random fan from 50 years ago pull out some play from some obscure game that counteracts whatever you just said. Like, how does anybody remember that? But they do. So we spend a ton of time just focusing on that sort of truism. Know who you are. Know who you are. Stay true to that. Hey, a quick time out here to say thank you for being a part of our growing audience at Gameface Execs. And before we get back to more of our interview, please know that if this is the year you're ready to turn your sales or service staff into game-changing professionals that your customers or clients will love and want to talk about to others, I would welcome a conversation just to explore how I might assist your efforts. No heavy-handed techniques or tricks, just an open dialogue about how you want them to sell and serve your clientele and how my training could be the approach they've been looking for. Go to GameFaceSync.com right now or after this episode and let's connect. Your people and customers will thank you. And so do I. It's true that you work with big brands as opposed to small businesses. So GameFace is a small business, for example, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like, to use you know, the old metaphor, it feels like when I need to make a pivot, I can mm -hmm. do so like a speedboat. But if I'm working with a large brand, a multinational brand like you work with, it's an aircraft carrier. So how are they navigating these treacherous waters we've been in the last 12 months when things seem to be changing daily, certainly weekly, and how are they able to transition and move as quick as a small business does, or are they not? And is that where they're tripping up or is that where they're making mistakes? 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's, it depends on the brand. And this is where I will reserve the right to not actually call me out by name. <laughs> but there are those who, so first of all, the ones that I think succeed, he who has the most information does well, right? Full stop. So the ones that I see most adaptive and able to adapt are the ones who, who spend the time and the research. Those who are very deep in the analytics of understanding their consumer base, understanding their product, doing well with it, being honest about what works and what doesn't. There's a lot of hubris that goes on inside corporate boardrooms. And the ones that I see that are the most effective are the ones who really listen to the data and through the data, what their own consumers and customers are saying. You know, we had a CEO once use a phrase with me that says the problem with trusting the analytics, the person in the room who gets paid the most isn't the one making the decisions. And I always thought that was an incredibly insightful way of looking at it. You're the CEO, you're the one in the room making the most money. And yet in this case, you're going to listen to the data and what your consumers are telling you. You're not the one making the decision. Your, anal- your analyst is, and you got to trust that. And I thought that was really sort of a bang on way to look at it. The other one that I'll tell you is though do really well are those that and able to move the fastest is those that do two things that I find best in class. Number one, plan for, you know, act today, plan for tomorrow. So we have one client that we work with that runs in parallel path. And we've done this for them for a number of years, are active in the middle of planning, like for this season today, what are we going to do with the NBA? What are we going to do with the NFL today? But in, at the same time, we're looking at the plan for today we're doing what we call a three, five, seven planning for them. Where are you going to be in three years, five years, seven years? And we run that every year for them today and three, five, seven. And understanding that act for today, plan for tomorrow has been the number one thing that I think people who do that succeed really well and can move fast, right? Because you're, you're acting in today, you're planning for tomorrow and those are adapting as you're moving along. And the second sort of best practice that I would share is I'd be willing to test and learn and fail. Test and learn. The brands that I know that have that in their mantra do really, really well in terms of staying ahead of the game. Okay, well, I don't know how that's going to work, but let me do a small pilot and test and learn. If I'm ever in a boardroom and I hear the phrase test and learn, I'm like, merciful. It's like music to my ears. This brand is willing to move quickly. So let's put a pilot out there. Let's put a program. Let's do a small deal. Let's do something tiny, learn from it, and then be okay if we fail. And if we fail, we turn it off. If it succeeds, we turn it up. And those that can do both of those things, I think are really strong best practices. Before you and I started this interview, before we turned on the record button, we were talking about a brand which, which shall go nameless that you and I have both worked with and in fact, yep. currently are working with where we're already looking at 2022. Mm-hmm. 2021 is, you know, we hope for the best, right? But there's a lot of things even now out of our control but we're doing our best with 2021, but we're already laying down the groundwork for 2022. Your point is even 2022 is not far out enough, right? Three, five, seven. Three, so five. I've got to imagine there may be some cynics who are listening or watching this who will say, how can you plan for seven years out when everything is so different a year, from a year ago today So aren't you wasting a lot of time and resources and energy trying to predict what's going to happen five or seven years from now? Well, what I would argue back is how do you win a race where you don't know where the finish line is and you aren't pointing towards it? So yeah. Are there things that I have done in 357 planning that didn't come to fruition? You bet. But to me, knowing where I want to go, knowing where the finish line is, is the best way to win the race. 
So, you know, worst case scenario, you plan for something, you know, it doesn't come to fruition. Well, if you're constantly in the mode, excuse me, of doing this three, five, seven planning, then the minute one thing doesn't work, the next thing does. It's, you can't just parachute in and do it once in a blue moon. You've got to keep that commitment and continuity. And if you do just as many things win as lose in that planning process. Well, what I love about what you're saying is that you develop the muscles of planning, you develop the muscles of innovation and vision, just going through that exercise, mm-hmm. which is only going to make you and your team even better. I would have to think. I would like to agree. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about Wasserman Vision. Before we go there, we've talked a little bit about your brands. I don't want to leave out the property side yeah. of what you do. Can you tell us a few of those properties that you work with right now or that you have worked with that, that we would all recognize and perhaps give us kind of an idea of the kind of work that you do for them? So the properties we work with are what I call, or what we like to do is what I call commercialization or go-to-market strategy. What we don't do is sell. Like I don't sell on behalf of properties. I'll get you ready to sell. I'll tell you who to sell to, what you should price it for, how to resonate with them, how to package it to get the most money, how to attract the most sponsors, commercialization. I'll get you ready to sell. We don't sell. And we don't for primarily two reasons. Number one, defensive. Like I find it, a conflict of interest with the brand side of our business. I don't know how to be responsible to making objective agnostic decision-making recommendations to our brands and still profiting off the flip side of selling them to a property. There are many of my competitors do that. And quite frankly, I don't know how they sleep at night. I don't do it. So we don't sell, but we'll get you as, as a property ready to sell. The other flip side of why outside of the defensive is offensive. You know, the brands, I represent enough brands to know this firsthand. They want to have relationships with the properties they sponsor. They do not want to have relationships with some third-party salesperson who's going to sell them a package and then be gone five minutes later. They want to have direct relationships with the properties they sponsor. So because of both that offensive and defensive reason, we put aside sales. We focus on that service element, that consultative element of getting you ready to go to market. And what that means is everything from a very robust valuation portfolio or platform and product, which is to help properties understand how to take their assets to market from a naming rights to a Jersey patch, from a kit sponsorship deal to a practice facility, you know, naming rights, any of those elements that you're going to take to market will help you understand what the value is of that on the open market. What are sponsors going to buy that asset for? It's fascinating. I tell properties all the time, I will never tell you what to sell your assets for, but I'll damn sure tell you what people are willing to buy them for. And that's more valuable information. And then we have a whole suite of services that come after that, which is, okay, well, if this is sort of fair market value, then how do you get the most out of that? How do you monetize that the most effectively as a property? So what are the services you can put around it? How do you package it? What brands do you target to sell that to? And then on the fan side, it's everything from you know, understanding and helping them understand fan engagement platforms, bringing fans in a lot last year on online ways of figuring out how to make sure they they keep their fan community engaged, how to attract new fans, how to understand new fan demographics, such as the work we do with the collective, how to talk to them, how to pitch them, how to market to those segments. So it's all about taking that brand to market and being accountable to the fans and to the sponsors of your property. Are there some innovations that in the last 12 months, the pandemic has forced you to explore, perhaps even perfect? What I love to say is necessity is one hell of a mother of invention. You know, when you get stuck in certain environments, you have to react to that. And those who can react the most quickly win 
I saw tons of people stick their head in the sand and say, I'm just going to wait till this is over. And I'm like, this is going to be a while. (laughs) The ones who adapted and stepped up and said, nope, we're going to figure this out. will be leaps and bounds ahead of their competitors when we come out of this. You know what? I'll give you one small example. Obviously what to do with no fans in an arena. It's a pretty big problem for the fans themselves. They want to be there. They want to engage with the content. It's a pretty big problem for the properties. Like, what do you do? You've not only lost the revenue streams, but you've lost the ability to engage with your audience. So how do you know the revenue streams are going to come back if the audiences don't come back? And last but not least, it's incredibly important to the athletes. The athletes don't like performing in front of empty stadiums. They don't perform up to their potential or their A game. So there's a lot of implications to what that looks like if you don't do it well. So we, I'll never forget it. I got a call from one of our technicians and our experiential marketing team in London early on in the pandemic. And you know, he said to me, he's like, you know, I have this idea. Like we have this little piece of tech that we had used to bring crowd noise from in an arena into off-premise uh, like locations. So if you couldn't go to a game, but you were in a pub, we would capture the content of the fans are in the arena and send it back out to the pub where the supporters were watching a football match. Great. So it was a way to keep those in the stadium and those out of the stadium together. And he said to me, he's like, well, why don't I just re- like reverse that? Let me just re-engineer it and bring everybody from their homes into the stadium to engage in a way. Just the same piece of tech. I'm just going to flip it. I'm like, hmm, sounds awesome. And uh, that's a lovely little product called CrowdAmp that we built in the middle of the pandemic was born. And it was all about capturing these people watching at home on their phones, looking at a computer, capturing them, bringing those voices back into a stadium, but not just for the noise sake, for the ability to really engage and have opportunities to interact and feel like they're still part of the environment. And we were really proud of that. It's won some awards during the uh, COVID time, but it's something as simple as forget the noise, quiet all the gimmicks, and what are you trying to do? And why? Making things a little bit better is sort of our brand ethos. No matter how good you are, the next day you can get up and try to be better. And that's what we did with Crowdown. We made it better. Well, congratulations to all the Wasserman team for that. And we'll get back to our interview in just a moment. But at BMW, they didn't make just one SUV. They made the ultimate range SUV. With unmatched power, luxury, and performance, BMW X-Range is prepared for any road you travel. No matter who you are, no matter where you're going, no matter what's next, there's an X to take you there. So, you know, I don't use this term in a disparaging way. It's a compliment. Wasserman is is a marketing group, Mm -hmm. right? You're a marketing company. Yep. So looking ahead now, help us get into the mind of Elizabeth Lindsay. What is your marketing group? What does your company look like five years from now, seven years from now? I don't give away any secrets, of course. I know you won't, but can you help us understand what a I could. Your- <laughs> I could give away a secret or two, but then what this company would look like in five years would be without me. So look, I feel like you never go wrong focusing on the core of the fan. Like what are people fans of? Why? And how, did, how can you serve that? Fan-driven insights. And what I mean by that is, look, for you to ask me, 20 years ago when I started my career, more than that now, when I started my career, whether or not, you know, something like esports would fill an entire arena, I would laugh at you, right? I mean, even back then, we were just trying to get our heads wrapped around what we called at the time extreme sports of everybody on a surfboard or a skateboard being a quote real sport. So, you know, to me, we try to follow our own advice. 
Number one, I am not my own demographic. I don't have a desire to go sit in an arena and watch someone play Fortnite. I don't. Every one of my 15-year-old son's friends would. So I don't, but they would. I'm not my demographic. They are. So we try to get our own heads out of it like, and realize that we're serving that fan and we are not necessarily that fan. We have to serve all fans. And then you have to do your own version of 357. We spend a ton of time looking at the industry. Where do we think it's going to be a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, seven years from now? And how do we get ahead of that? That's what put us in the space of research and analytics way before anybody else paid attention to that in sports. That's what put us in the space of focusing on female fandom and the division of the collective before anybody else did. That's what put us in a position to survive the pandemic because we were already online and in-person as a hybrid long before other experiential companies were. It's that same like ethos. What we teach our clients to do, we have to do for ourselves. Remember, you are not your own demographic and stay ahead of the game, 357. Let's finish with some personal thoughts, if we could, Elizabeth. Sure. As you know, at GameFace Execs, we like to really hone in on the power of influence and persuasion and inspiration. And occasionally, I like to ask my guests, and I'd like to do this with you today, I'd like to ask them, who was either your biggest inspiration as you were growing your career, as you are growing your career? Who has persuaded you? to think the way you think, who's been the biggest influencer, either professionally or personally, if you wouldn't mind sharing a name and maybe a little bit of background for us. So I have been asked this question before and I answer it the same way every time. And it's for strange reasons, I think. But my mother was the biggest influence on me in terms of my worldview and my worldview informs my business view. And my mom is not in the space. She's an executive in the hospital. She's retired now, but at the time was an executive in the hospitality industry. So she ran very, very high-end resorts, golf courses, things like that. And I learned the power of relationships by watching my mom. She's one of the, she's not anything she actively taught me. I just watched, I paid attention. And she's one of those people that could trade her way. You know, the stories you hear about, there's a paperclip and somehow at the end of it, you have a Ferrari. My mother is like definitely one of those people who could trade from a paperclip to Ferrari, give her a couple of weeks and she'd figure it out. And I watched her as a child being really, really, really transparent and open with here's what I know and here's what I don't know. And for what I don't know, I know who does. And that ability to call anybody for anything, there was nothing that people brought her that she either didn't know the answer to, or she would go, okay, give me a minute. I'll figure it out. And I'll find someone who can help me. And what's beautiful about knowing who can help you only works is if you have spent a lifetime cultivating that relationship. So when you do need them to help you, they're willing to help you. And trust me, I'm willing to help anybody in this industry, but I keep a mental list of the ones who've helped me back and they get my calls first. And so that power of relationships, the power of building a network, understanding who to call, but also understanding how to cultivate a relationship in a way that it's a two-way street. So when you do pick up the phone, someone's willing to answer that. Very powerful in our industry, 100%. She also taught me, there was a phrase she used to say a lot when I was a kid, to whom much is given, much is expected, which was her way of saying, yes, you do have to clean your room. And yes, you do have to eat your vegetables. And yes, you do have to do your homework. 
right? So yes, to whom much is given, much is expected. And that phrase is in my head a lot, all the time in my day-to-day professional life, because I think it conveys two very powerful things. One of which is gratitude, like stopping and acknowledging everything that you've been given and nobody, myself included, yourself included, got to be sitting in the seat without a ton of people who helped us. So stop in the moment, be grateful for that, but also obligation. And I think people look at obligation like it's a nasty word, expectation, much is expected. It's not a nasty word. It's a powerful word. I feel very, very obligated to those people who have helped me get where I am. I feel very, very obligated to the generation of women who come behind me and make it to make it just that much easier. It was not easy to grow up as a woman in this industry. I want to make it that much easier for those who come behind me. That is an obligation that I feel. So that power of recognizing both ends of that equation, gratitude and obligation, both of those things, that power of relationships, the impact that comes with respecting and being grateful and taking that obligation forward. I learned both of those from my mom. I think we'd be wise to end on that note. <laughs> and I hope your mom would be proud. And I think I'm sure she would be. She still doesn't right? understand exactly what I do for a living. <laughs> she still asks everybody, what is it that she does again? But yeah. she did influence it. I've been there, believe me. Uh, Well, that's a wonderful note to end on uh, because I'd like us to kind of hang on that thought, uh, the power of obligation and responsibility that we have, and and then the fantastic role that gratitude should play in our lives and in our careers. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast, Elizabeth, because you demonstrate that and you have throughout your career. So as you know, I admire the work you do and look forward to seeing great work in the future from you and your team, but thanks for joining us. And thanks for all the wise counsel over that <laughs> hour. Well, I thank you for having me and let me ramble on. So it's been an experience. Thank you very much. It was no ramble. Thank you so much. So first, you know, women don't want to be treated as different fans. They just want to be treated as fans. Like we're fans. You know, I think long gone for the longest time early in my career, there was a whole phenomenon of shrink it and pink it, right? Like the way to court women is to take t-shirts and make them smaller and pinker and cover women. And we're going to market those and they'll become Knicks fans if it's pink. So we used to always talk about like shrink it and pink it are gone. People are at least past that a little bit thinking that that's the way to go after women. They are past the concept of football 101. Like we're going to host girls night football 101 classes. So you understand how to engage with your man. No, <laughs> we're past that. We are fans in our own right. We understand the game. We like the game. We like it with just as much passion and avidity. We may like it for different reasons. So just take the time to understand that. And no, my fandom is not in context of someone else's. Too often, people market to women and their fandom as in context of or in service of someone else's. You're a fan because your husband watches and you want to be there with them. You're a fan because your kid plays. You're a fan because it was passed down by your dad. Like, you know, our fandom is not a context of someone else's. Talk to me about the fan that I am and why I engage and what I like about the sport. The key is getting to understand that. Doing the work. Do the work. Do the analytics. Do the deep, deep, deep insight work you need to do in understanding this segment of consumer, and it'll pay out. Elizabeth and Wasserman have done the work. That's why their talent management division represents more elite athletes than any agency in the world. And it's why Elizabeth has risen so quickly in the dog-eat-dog world of sports marketing. 
She explains fully in the rest of our episode how to act today, plan for tomorrow. Join us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or your favorite platform to learn more from the woman who is true to who she is.